Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. We're talking about sex today. Just getting it out there. So here's the deal. Maybe you're a teenager and you're sitting next to your mom and dad. What you want to do is you want to go to the bathroom now. And then you want to go quietly and sit somewhere else. Uh, don't leave the meeting, but um, yeah, I mean, it's going to get awkward uh, is what I'm saying. Anyway, sexuality says, hey, yo, if you don't check your weekly mailer or you didn't um, follow the broadcast list and you haven't been in church for a while, surprise, um, you're in for a bit of a shock. We're taking four weeks, taking four weeks to do six talks, and we're looking at Jesus and sexuality. I want to give some credit first before we jump into our message. Rebecca McLaughlin, guys, if you haven't read Rebecca McLaughlin, especially to the youngsters here, she is a phenomenal writer. I'd encourage you to read some of her work. Uh, she just is a brilliant writer, drawing from Rebecca McLaughlin. Sam Albury is a, a same-sex attractive man who's living a celibate life. He's a pastor in the, in the U.S., and he's written, um, he's written some fantastic books. One of them, of Sam's, is on this list of um, the Sunday book table over here, Is God Anti-Gay, um, he is, is Sam's book. And so if you didn't get one of these, pick up one of these as well. I really want to say Sam Albury has been a fantastic resource. If you were to choose one book to buy on the subject of Jesus and sexuality, I would recommend Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. It is phenomenal, and um, I, I've just loved it. It's, it's just a brilliant, brilliant read. So much of Nancy Piercy's work has informed this series uh, John Tyson, a preacher from the U.S., and um, the Australian guy moved to New York City, Church of the City in New York. So much of uh, John's messages on the subject have shaped ours. Uh, and today in particular, a message by a guy named John Mark Homer from Bridgetown Church has really been helpful in putting together this morning's talk. So, as we talk about Jesus and sexuality, I'm sure there's a bit of a mixed bag of response. For some of us, we are going, flip. Four weeks about sex. Do we have to talk about it for so long? Maybe some of the older folk I thought, and then in our church I said um, I said that, and then a seventy-year-old lady said, "Speak for yourself, young man." <laughs> okay. Anyway, some of the youngsters, you're thinking to yourself, "Finally, we're going to actually be able to talk about this stuff because this is just so real." and part of our lives. Yes, we have to talk about this. We have to, why? Because our world is changing so fast. Our world has changed and is still in the process of change at a rate that has been difficult to keep up with, right? The, the, the sexual landscape, if you were, has been changing through technology, media, globalization, and different influences, religion. Everything is shifting so much. And one of the things that has been changing so much is the area of sexuality. So yes, we have to talk about this. I'm going to be covering a lot of ground today. And um, so, you know, stay dialed in, like find a posture that leans into gear here. I hope you took your vitamins and had some coffee this morning. We're going to cover a lot of ground. At times, it may feel like you're drinking water from a fire hydrant. But, um, but it, I trust this morning is going to be helpful. So, yes, we need to talk about this. In fact, by way of introduction, five shifts. Five shifts that have happened in the landscape of sexuality in the last, since 1960. Okay, so that would have been within our lifetime. For some of you, though, you would have been born into this, though. So, so for some of us, we, we watch these changes happen. For others, this is just the way the world is for you. And so um, I'm not making moral uh, statements about whether this is right or wrong. I just want to list five things that have happened in the last sort of recent years of the world that have radically shifted 
in terms of the area of sexuality. So number one, sex has been disconnected from childbearing. Sex has been disconnected from childbearing. In 1960, oral, oral contraceptives were introduced into the world. In other words, for all of history before until then, it was nearly impossible to experience the pleasures of sex without the potential responsibility that can come with it. When that happened, these two things became uncoupled. And suddenly you could enjoy the pleasures of sex without the risk of massive, massive responsibility. That changed the way sexuality uh, plays itself out in life. The second thing that we see happening in the sexual landscape is um, sex has become disconnected from marriage. Before our generation, of all the people who have ever lived, the vast majority of people, regardless of their faith, for most of history, generally speaking, had connected sex and marriage. These two things went together, except for us. Uh, in our modern generation, sex has been uncoupled and disconnected from long-term commitment. And there's a couple of implications, a couple of implications in our society. The first one is the incredible anxiety around sex and sexuality that, is, that has come to, come to be. And, and, and science helps us make sense of this anxiety. Uh, science helps us understand the role of two hormones at play in sex. Uh, the, the hormone um, uh, oxytocin and the second one vasopressin. Oxytocin first. Scientists first learn about oxytocin because of the role that it plays in childbirth and in breastfeeding. It's a chemical that is released when a mother nurses her baby, which stimulates an instinct for caring and nurturing. It's been called the attachment hormone. This is oxytocin. Surprise, surprise, scientists discover that oxytocin is also released during sex, especially, but not exclusively, in women. So consequently, the desire to attach when we have sex is not just an emotion, but it's literally part of our chemistry. The main neurochemical response when it comes to men is vasopressin, which is structurally similar to oxytocin, and it has a similar effect. Scientists believe that it stimulates bonding. Vasopressin has been called the monogamy molecule because of this role that it plays. And so how you can, you can understand how when we uncouple sex from commitment, yet physiologically as well as emotionally we're wired to commit, it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. In fact, philosopher, um, uh, philosophy professor Anne Maloney from the U.S., says this. She says, it's no surprise that the top two pres most prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and birth control. Now, we're not going to be so simplistic as to say that they always are the cause of each other. We know that's not the case. But certainly, we might be naive to not see the link here. The second cause that we see of uncoupling sex from marriage in our society is prevalent in South Africa. It's fatherlessness. In 2018, the survey, uh, a census was conducted in South Africa. The Western Cape has the highest instance of fathers who are still living at home with their kids. Yay! 56%. Eastern Cape, where I come from, is the lowest, 25%. Which means that if you're growing up right now in South Africa, between 75% and 50% of kids are not growing up with fathers in the home. We've disconnected sex from marriage, and this is the result. The third thing we see that shifted massively in the last uh, sort of few decades is that sex has become disconnected from male and female relationships. This is still very, very new. Um, Same-sex marriages were only legalized in South Africa in 2006. In fact, in 2008, Barack Obama, who was head of the Democratic, the kind of more liberal side of U.S. politics, 
He ran his presidential campaign in 2008 on the more liberal side of the U.S. economy or political system against same-sex marriage. That's not, my point is just to say this is not a long time ago. This is very sudden. We're not going to speak much about it today. On Wednesday night, we're reconvening in this spot. What time? Does anybody know? 7.30. Thank you, Kelly. That was quick, eh? I've got another one I'm going to ask you just now. Just be ready. And, uh, and we're going to meet you, and we're going to speak more at length about this, so, like literally long at length, about 90 minutes. Um, uh, so be prepared, take your, have your coffee, and we're going to talk about this, so I'm going to keep moving now. Number four, sex has been disconnected from love, relationship, and emotional connection. Sorry, this, this stands a little bit skewed, so when I talk to you like this, it's because I'm trying to read, it's not that I'm dizzy. Um, Sex has become disconnected from love, relationships, and emotional connection. Now, this is not true for all, but it certainly is true for many, and it is the trend we see in our society. I'm talking about hookup culture. If you're older, hookup, what does a hookup mean? Well, when I was at school, if I could say to one of my mates, hey, man, we should hook up later and grab or whatever, it's very different than what it means now. <laughs> okay. Things have changed. You guys are laughing at me. You know, hey? Hookup culture is the idea of, uh, of sex with somebody and then just being able to walk away without any form of attachment or commitment or um, uh, connection, uh, re- ongoing relationship to the other person. Thank you so much, Colin. Class actually volunteered to do this for me earlier, but I didn't realize uh, that it was so wonky anyway. We're we clear about hookup culture. Hey, hookup culture, no relationship, no commitment, no exclusivity, just sex. And you're supposed to be able to walk away as if it never even happened, right? This is what we're teaching our young people in a sense. We're teaching people to disassociate their bodies sexually from who they are as whole people. It, I was talking about this last week in our church. One high schooler said this. She said, it's not uncommon among my friends that they would have sex before they kiss each other. Because having sex is just kind of, it's just body, but to kiss someone, oh, that's really serious. You've got to like look in their eyes and everything. Researcher Donna Freitas says this, after interviewing hundreds of students, she concluded this about hookup culture. It creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. Amid the seamless Amid the seemingly endless partying in America's college campuses lies a thick layer of melancholy, insecurity, and isolation that no one can seem to shake. College students have perfected an air of bravado about hookup culture. Though a great many of them privately wish for a world of romance and dating. Students learn from the media, from their friends, and even their parents that it's not sensible to have long-term relationships in college. College is a special time in life. They will never get a chance to learn as much, to meet as many people, and have as much fun again. Relationships restrict freedom. They require care and upkeep and time. Oh, it's admin. What a lust, you know? Time. Then anyone can afford to give during uh, this exciting period between adolescence and adulthood. They add pressure to the already heavily pressurized, overscheduled lives of today's students, who, according to this ethos, should be focusing on their classes, their job prospects, and the opportunity to party as wildly as they can manage. They can always settle down later because they've been taught to believe that hookup culture is normal, that everybody is enjoying it, and that there's something wrong with them if they don't enjoy it too. What could be better than sex without strings? Yet, in fact, many of them, both men and women, are not enjoying it at all. 
while hookup sex is supposed to come with no strings attached, it nonetheless creates an enormous amount of stress and drama among participants. Many in the studies were saying, actually, it's so hard, they actually have to get, they've got to have a certain amount of alcohol in their system before they can really participate. One writer said that sex is, when sex is reduced to an exchange of pleasures, the other person's personality becomes a burden. Increasingly, as a culture, we defer marriage later and later for our careers, for our travel plans, but people still want to enjoy sex, just sex without commitments. An interview of Naomi in Rolling Stone magazine uh, said this, hookup culture made people assume that there are two very distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one sexual, and they pretend like there's clean lines between the two of them. Anxiety in the culture. Closer to home in South Africa, you have the blesser and blessy culture. Have you heard about a blesser? 2016 made famous. A blesser is a form of transactional sex in which older men or blessers entice younger women through money and expensive gifts to do kind of sexual favors for them. The blesser culture. Here's the thing that I want to get to though. None of these things are new and people have been doing them for a long time in our world. What's new is that more and more these shifts are being pitched as moral progress and liberation from oppression. And the people who hold views contrary to them are labeled as archaic and even evil. Number five, sex has been disconnected from people. The obvious example of the depersonalized sex of pornography where a viewer disconnects a subject's body from the rest of interest of who or he or she as a person is. Where do we go to next from pornography, the experts tell us? Robotic sex dolls. Things you never thought you'd ever say, let alone hear in church. Futurists predict that in 10 years' time, sex robots will become more popular than porn. The first sex doll brothel has already been opened in Barcelona, Spain. You've got to, check, you've got to imagine what it's like for a preacher, right? I've got to check and Google and verify all these facts in the books that I read. You've got to try and thread the needle through this like minefield of stuff that's on the internet to try and do this, right? Forbes.com, in an article on Forbes.com, sex with humans could soon be a thing of the past. The German magazine Spiegel wrote in an article about the report, The Future of Sex, by British mathematician and physicist Ian McPherson. I didn't know that British mathematicians were sex experts, but anyway, who would have thought? Who draws a future in which robotic brothels and strip clubs with computer-controlled dances are normal? Doesn't sound that far-fetched, actually, does it? Today, more and more of our friendships happen via computers and not face-to-face. More of our relationships happen via digital platforms. It's creating an epidemic of loneliness in society as it's changing what a relationship means. Japan has been one of the hardest hit where one one in three people under the age of 30, one third of people under the age of 30 have never been on a date before where one in four men say they are no longer romantically interested in women. Not because they've become asexual, but because they're going for virtual girlfriends and porn. The stats tell us that young people are having less sex than ever before. 
before you crack out the streamers, it's because of porn. And it's because no one has got the social skills to flirt anymore. It's all digital. This is the canary in the coal mine, guys. There is so much pain, there is so much hurt, there is so much dysfunction, guilt, shame, regret, anger, fear, and insecurity when it comes to sex gone wrong. And people often say, what's the big deal? It's only sex. It's not like anybody gets hurt. Really? Is there anyone who hasn't been hurt by sex? I think of divorce and adultery and sex addiction, attachments, body image insecurity. As you, you, you see these, these um, Instagram pictures of everybody else that's been filtered and dressed up and you compare that to your physical self and you, you start to experience this insecurity that comes. Our world has really lost the plot when it comes to sex. We've uncoupled sex from family, relationships, and even from people. At best, I think it's naive, but I, I, I can't help but feel that human beings are worse off for it all. And so I want to say to you before we start this kind of series, if you're struggling with your sexuality in any way, I want you to know you're not alone. As much as there's a message out there in society that this is what it is and everybody's doing this, no, 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 that might be the message. But deep down, every human being in this moment is wondering, where does this leave me and what should I be doing and where do I go to for genuine uh, questions and pain that I have? So if you're searching for answers, I want you to know you're not alone. I also want to say this, the church hasn't always got this right. The church hasn't always got this right. I'm not trying to stand up here and say that Christianity has always been on the right side of sexuality. We haven't. We're not going to pretend that we haven't got egg on our faces as, as Christ followers. I must be honest with you and say that I am deeply embarrassed about some of the things that Christians have done in the name of Jesus when it comes to sexuality and the way they have treated other people. But that doesn't mean we... we what it means is, it means we have to be incredibly humble, but at the same time, we have to be clear about what the scriptures teach and what it looks like to live a flourishing sexual life as a human being in the image of God. And so we're going to try our best as uh, preachers and as leaders to, to, to share a vision from a humble place, but with a high regard of, uh, for the scriptures and what the scriptures call us to. So that was an introduction to the first message. Today I want to talk about the story that you are living in, the story that you are living in. Every single one of us is living in a story. Your life is located in a story that you believe. You believe in that story about who God is or who God isn't. You believe about who you are and who other people are and how you relate to each other and what the purpose of life is. Every single one of us is living our lives out of a story, a narrative that we believe um, is true. And that that story we believe is, is, is it, it governs how we work out our sexuality, how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to other people as well. Today I want to look at two stories that are out there, the secular story and the Christian story. Christians believe that every single one of us as human beings is broken. Every single one of us as human beings is broken. And that among other things, God in Jesus Christ became a human being, among other things, to show us what humanity was created to be, 
to show us what it means to be fully human. We look to Christ and he shows us the potential for our lives as well. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of Jesus' teachings. And we're not just going to look at the kind of morality of his teachings. But I want us to kind of look through the morality to the worldview that empowers this belief. Let's look to see what did Jesus believe about God, about the Bible, about other people, about marriage, about men, about women, about sexuality, as Jesus teaches on the subject. And so we're going to look through, hey, is this right or is this wrong, to what does the Bible teach about who God is, about who I am as a sexual being, about how I relate to other human beings as well. We're going to ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? What is it like to be a man? What does it like to be? Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be a, a woman? What, what, what do you believe about your physical body? Am I more than just matter and mass? Forgive my crudeness. Meat. Do I have a soul? Do I have a spirit? Does what I do with my physical body matter to me, to others, to God? Let's have a look. Matthew chapter nineteen. Verse 1 to 6. Follow along in your own Bibles if you like, or I have it up on the screen as well. Let's have a look at what Jesus taught. But remember, let's look through just morality to what is the worldview? What is, what is the truth that we see coming through all of these words? Matthew 19 and verse 1. So beautiful, Meg, that you shared the story that you did, the testimony of what God did. So we open here, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds follow him there, and he healed their sick. Jesus healed their sick. It's healing, for he, healing for Jesus wasn't just a magic trick to try and get lots of people together. Healing for Jesus was, was, was a, well, here's what he was doing when he healed somebody. He was reaching into the future of the resurrected bodies, of our resurrected life that Christ came to purchase. And he pulled that like this into the present now so that we could see in the present what Christ is ultimately doing in our lives. All healing, all healing is gonna end in death, this side of heaven. But Jesus is doing this. He's showing us, this is what I've come to do. Through the resurrection, through my bodily resurrection, through new life that comes to you, I wanna give you a taste now of what I'm ultimately doing. As, a, as he restores humanity to fullness. Verse three, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? You see, they're coming with a moral question. Is it right or is it wrong? They wanna get him to commit to that. But notice that Jesus doesn't go with yes or no. Jesus goes higher than just right and wrong to a theology of what it means to be human. In verse four, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied, Firstly, just quickly to point out, how does Jesus relate to the Bible? Look at the worldview and how Jesus brings himself under the scriptures. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, now this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined Together, they ask him for a yes or no. Look what Jesus gives them. He says, no, no, it, what, do you, what do you understand it means to be human? What do you understand God designed and wove into us? From the beginning, God made them male and 
female. Jesus looks like, he looks that, he shows us behind morality is a theology of what it means to be human. He takes them back to Genesis, to theology. You see, for Jesus, our sexual practices stem from our understanding of what it means to be a human being and how we relate to God and how we relate to other people as well. There's two predominant stories in our world right now. And I wanna start by looking at the secular story before we come and we double back to the Christian story we see reflected in Jesus in Matthew 19. The secular story, are you ready? 10 points, buckle up. Number one, human beings are highly evolved animals. Human beings are highly evolved animals. We are here by luck and by chance. In other words, to be human is to be apes with time and chance on our side. That's all. Human nature, it just is. It is what it is. There's no meaning, there's no purpose to our bodies other than um, uh, what evolution has given us in terms of the furthering of the species. Number three, male and female are just physical differences in the plumbing. Number four, maybe you've, maybe you've heard some of this. Gender is just a social construct. Gender is imaginary. It's often said to have been developed by the patriarchy to oppress women. Number five, sex is just play for grown-ups. It's about a biological need for release, which is why Nancy Piercy in her book says this. She says, sex education courses typically focus solely on the physical dimension, on body parts, on health risks, on avoiding pregnancy, and the mechanics of sex. They do not teach us how to form and maintain a relationship. Now, I'm glad that people teach this. This is important. But if that's all we teach, you can see how the message is. It's just play for grown-ups. There's nothing more than that. When I was growing up, it was a, a song by the Bloodhound Gang called... I mean, the, the, the lyric was, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> that, was like, well, that was like number one for weeks, eh? <laughs> number six, love. Love is just a feeling of happiness you get from being with another. There's nothing permanent about love. Love is a feeling, it's a desire, and therefore love is fleeting. You shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't last. Number seven, marriage is a social construct. It's not natural. Nowhere in nature do you look and you see marriage. No, no, marriage is not natural. It's not part of nature. It's oppressive. It's getting in the way of our individual desire to explore uh, within ourselves, to pursue our freedom to be happy. Monogamy is not natural, it's not in nature. If it makes you happy, do it. If it stops making you happy, end it, get a divorce, uncouple, and you be true to how you feel you're gonna be happy. Number eight, authority and the Bible. The Bible's got some good ideas, but it's kind of anti-sex and it's quite outdated. It's oppressive because anything that limits our freedom to express ourselves is bad. And so therefore, it can't make us happy. Authority in, in this worldview is not found outside of yourself. 
in relationship to God or relationship to others, commitments like marriage, etc. Authority is found within yourself and you have to be true to how you feel and don't limit yourself in any way. Give yourself complete freedom to do what you, what's in your heart and then you will be happy. So your only authority is that which is within yourself. And number nine, two more, the body. The body is nothing but matter. And as such, it doesn't really matter at all. The body doesn't mean anything. It's just a tool that you use as you please. Speaking about the body, Catholic writer and former lesbian Melinda Silmus says this, you can do anything with it that you'd like. It's a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. And number 10, meaning and purpose. There is no real meaning in life. There's no creator, there's no design, therefore there's no purpose. So the best you can do is create your own meaning, decide on your own identity, and then convince others to affirm your discovered self. We don't need God. He's pretty much a dead weight slowing us down from progress. It's a story that we hear all the time in our modern culture. You hear it in Hollywood, moms and dads. We see it in Disney. We see it in Netflix and sitcoms and music videos and song lyrics, magazine covers, covers, and even in legislation now. And it's so prolific and so it, it, it's so much around us that it's hard to, it's easy to assume that it's true, but it's just a story. It's just a way of connecting data points in a particular uh, interpretation. It's very powerful though. Nancy Piercy says in her book, she says the most powerful worldviews are the ones, we absorb without, the ones we absorb without knowing it. They are the ideas nobody talks about, the assumptions we pick up almost by osmosis. You might have heard the story, David Foster Wallace um, shared this at a university graduation. He said an, an, old, an old man fish was swimming along and he swam along and he came in and he bumped into two younger men fish. And he said, the old, the old man fish said to the two young men fish, he says, how's the water today, boys? And the two young fish looked at each other and said, what the hell is water? The point being, they're in it so much, it's all they know. And so you become unaware of its reality. And I think this is what's happened in our world of sexuality today. But it's just a story. It's just a narrative that's been constructed by interpreting data points in a particular way. Before we look at the next one, we need to ask ourselves the question, is it working? Is it working? It's very new. It's hard to say because it's so new, but certainly we can say it's not working for a whole lot of people. Is there another story? Is there a truer story that makes better sense of your experience of life as a human being? And I wanna to put to you, yes, there is. It's the Christian story. And the Christian story goes like this. Number one, human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. What separates us as human beings from animals is more than our IQ and our finger dexterity, right? We are made in the image of a God who made us that way. And so to be human means you, 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 you're in His image. You have a soul. You have a spirit. You have an innate dignity by virtue of being designed that way by the Creator. You are not you are creation, not merely coincidence, which, which is why, incidentally, as, as Christians, we have a unique position in society to be able to 
to disagree with somebody around a particular issue and yet a responsibility to never treat them as less than human, to never dehumanize another person. As much as we can differ on a perspective, we can never just cancel them or dismiss them as being human because every human being bears this image of God. Number two, human nature. The way that we are as human beings is good, but we're bent. We've been bent out of shape. Because of the fall, sin is not just something that I do, but sin is something that is at work within me, which means that all of our sexualities are bent out of shape. Every one of our orientation has been, in a sense, skewed because of the fall. I said it, one, one way of understanding it, and the, word, the words are flawed, but it's like, as if every cell of my being is under the influence somehow of the fall. And so, yes, we're good, but we're all not perfect. We've all been bent out of shape, every single one of us. None of us is created, none of us is the way we, we were created to be. Number three, male and female in sex. Your maleness and your femaleness are from God and they are good. In fact, they are blessed. But I wanna to recognize too that there is incredible pain and struggle for those who feel their physiology and their psychology are not aligned. And this is very real and we're gonna talk about this in the coming weeks as well. Number four, men and women are equal yet different. We forget that feminism was started by followers of Christ trying to correct genuine wrongs in society. But gender by design comes with roles and responsibilities. God wired it that way. It is only as a team that men and women can fulfill the creation mandate to fill the world with the image of God. It is not good for man to be alone. We need one another, different yet Together, we fulfill God's purposes, equal yet different. Number five, sex is God's good idea. Yeah. Can I at least get an amen? <laughs> Rather than dismiss sex as trivial, as nothing, as playful grown-ups, sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed by a man and a woman who've been inseparably joined together. Guys, God created the orgasm. It's true, it's true. I mean, that's what we believe. God created this. It's a good thing that God, God designed. Nancy Piercy in her book says, if we're ever tempted to think that sex is corrupt or dirty, we need to remind ourselves that it was God who created sex in the first place. Tim Keller says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally, reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. If you're a Christian, you do not have a low view of sex like in the secular society. You have a higher view of what sex is. Sex is so much more than one body part going into another body part. It's the mingling of souls, how wrong the Bloodhound Gang were when they sang that song. It's two people becoming one flesh. Number six, love. You can see how these flow from each other. Love is so much more than an emotion or desire. Love is not lust. Love is a decision of the will to, deny, to delight in another person, 
to will their good above your own and even sacrifice to see them have that thing. Love is a decision of your will to delight in another person at a cost to yourself to see them flourish. I've been married to Lauren for 15 years this year, and we dated for five before that, which means that half my life I've been in a relationship with, with her. And, um, and I must be honest, as, as I was preparing this point, I was reflecting on my love for her across 20 years. And if I'm really honest with you, what I thought was love early on in our relationship, it, 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 was, it, wasn't, that, it wasn't a love for her as much as I loved how I felt because of her. It was actually deeply selfish, if I'm really honest. I loved, oh, it was the, oh, somebody, oh. That's not love for her. I don't have to sacrifice for that. I don't have to give up. I, no, I just, that's just, oh, it makes me feel so lovely. <laughs> now, 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 now there's times where we, we, we've, got, we've got limited resources. We've got to choose. Who's going to go, I just, Lauren, you, you must have it. I, I just want what's best for you. It's so much deeper. It's so different. Number seven, which is why marriage is not a contract that you can opt into and out of when you're no longer happy. It's a covenant that you vow before God and before your community to love another person, to love them again and again and again, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. I am committing to love you my will for you above myself. That's what marriage is. And it's intended to be a visible image of the divine human relationship between God who covenanted himself to us. You say to me, but Luke, that sounds incredibly limiting on my freedom to marry a person. And am I not giving up all my freedoms? I'm saying, no, you are gaining your freedoms in the most profound way. You see, because when I commit myself to Lauren and I limit, I limit my sexuality from every other human being on the planet to just her, and I say to her, I will love you. I've created a covenant. I love you a year from now, I'm still loving you. Five years from now, I'm still loving you. Ten years from now, in, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of our lives. You know, you know how free I am when I do that? What, 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 what am I talking about? I'm free because come sickness, come health. Come money, come, come a global pandemic. Whatever may happen that I cannot control, I am not at the mercy of my circumstances, I am not at the mercy of even my own emotional state in 10 years' time, which I cannot predict. I have risen above my circumstances and the things that can happen to me in life, and I have tethered myself. I have made a promise. I have made a covenant. I have created a, 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 an island of certainty in a world of uncertainty. I've become free by limiting my freedoms. That's Christian marriage. And it's a, it's a picture of God's love for us. The purpose of marriage then is not my happiness. Although when I align my life to God and Lauren aligns her life, her life to God, we find incredible happiness as well. The purpose of marriage is friendship, it's partnership, it's family, it's sexuality, it's spiritual formation. There is nobody who's gonna shape Luke away from my sinfulness toward Christ-likeness more in the world than Lauren. 
Because you can't hide in marriage. All your junk comes out in marriage, right? No elbowing of each other here. All your junk comes out, and my junk comes out, and she loves me. Well, hang on. That means different things in different contexts, eh? <laughs> Sorry. My rubbish comes out, and she loves me. And then more rubbish comes out, and she loves me. And it's humbling. And it's beautiful. And there's a bunch of stuff that goes, there's a couple of brackets between my rubbish comes out and she loves me, admittedly. There's some stuff that, you know what I'm talking about, right? But we've covenanted to each other. It's glorious, which is why divorce, well, it's anything but a clean break. Divorce is the breaking up of a covenant. It's the rupturing of soul ties. It's the betrayal of trust. And it's the death of a marriage. And yes, there's times when a marriage does die due to adultery or the refusal to repent after adultery or abandonment of a spouse or abandonment through abuse. But still, it's deeply, profoundly painful. It's anything, it's nothing like a clean break. It's difficult and we don't give up easily. Number eight, the Bible and authority. How did Jesus relate to the scriptures? They come to Jesus with a moral question. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? The Bible is our authority in life. It's where we come to for truth. In a world that's making it up as they go along without a clue as to where to go next, we are those who lift up the word of God and come under it and align our lives to there. That's why we take the book of James and preach through the book of James for 22 weeks in 2020. Why? Because James speaks about what it means to be fully human, what it means to be uh, human in the image of God, and we realign our lives to the authority of the Scriptures. We, the Bible is how we navigate our way. You remember all those years ago, well, you wouldn't remember, but it, many, many years ago, sailors used to navigate the ocean when they sailed by stars. And, and by, by, by finding the star in the sky, they could take their bearings and know where they were in the world and where they should go next. We navigate life like that by the Scriptures, the Bible and authority. Number nine, two left. You've been amazing. So well, guys. The body. The body is God's gift to us. It is good. It is from God. But it is imperfect. Which means your body matters. We are embodied beings as Christ follows. Your body is a fundamental part of of who you are. Jesus, that's why Jesus had to come in a physical body. He died in a physical body. He was raised to life in a physical body, and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now in a physical body. It's why ultimately you will be 100% fully healed, as Meg said, restored and redeemed, and you will receive from Jesus a resurrection body, not just a disembodied bodied Casper the ghost that floats around with clouds. No, a physical body. To, your, 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 I'm, I'm, your body is not just a tool to be used. It's part of what makes you you. It's, it's why when someone assaults your body sexually or physically, it's, it's more than just an attack on molecules. It gets to the core of who you are. Because your body is part of who you are. And lastly, number 10, the overall meaning of life. Meaning is not found within ourselves, not even on our own. 
in our individualistic pursuit of happiness. Meaning is found in connection. It's found in love for God and God's love for us. It's found in our love for others and their love for us. We have meaning in love. It's why, I think probably only true for Christians, can you say the meaning of life is love. Because of God's love for us, our love for Him, and, our, and the way in which that overflows into our love for one another and our relationships together. Two different worldviews, two different stories. Both of them believed by faith. Both of them by interpreting the data points of reality in a particular way. We must end. And as we end, Jesus would end his teachings by saying two things. He'd say the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he would say, repent and believe. The word repent is not a word we use terribly often in our society anymore. But the simple definition of repent, repent is the Greek word metanoia, which simply means to change the way you think about something so as to live differently. In a sense, Jesus was saying, rethink reality and live in a different way. And I wanna put to you today these two worldviews. I wonder if for some of us, it's been a little bit of this, as you realize as I've been talking about them. And repentance looks like this. And taking a new worldview that you live out in our world. This is how the kingdom of God comes in our world. Through ordinary Christ followers like you and I who bring our lives in line with the truth and then go out, go out into society and live differently. The world is seeded with a new faith and with new life as we do that. And so I'm gonna invite the band to come up and lead us in song and give you an opportunity just to reflect. Hey, this today is the beginning of a journey. Each of these talks are gonna build on each other. But let me ask you, what story are you living in? What story are you living in? Every one of us, you've never been where you want to go. You need someone to guide you there. And I wanna say to you, let Christ be your guide when it comes to sexuality. Can we stand together and can we sing? And let's just prayerfully engage with God. I'm asking you to put your faith in a truer story, a story that makes better sense even of your human experience. Jesus, we come before you now and we recognize that, man, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of different ideas in the world in which we live. And a lot's changed in a very short space of time and it's changed all around us, Lord. And yet we're yours. And we believe that you came to show us, among other things, how to be fully human in the best possible way, Jesus. And so I, I pray, maybe, maybe you're one of those people who you're a bit of a blur between these two stories and what you're believing. And today you wanna to say, I'm ready to uncouple these things and to believe and to live out of Christ's story. I'd love to pray for you if that's you. Jesus, 
I realize I've been believing something else. Some stuff has crept in. Maybe it was always there for some of you. Maybe you believed Christ's story at some point and realized it just became diluted over the last while. But this morning it's become clearer to say, Christ, I'm yours. I understand who I am and what it means to be human and who others are. Commitment, love in a new way. I want to align my life to you, Jesus, to your word. Would you come and guide me in this area of sexuality, Jesus? In a world where there's so much pain and so much hurt in this area, Christ, would you help me to navigate this area of life? Take a second before we sing to pray your words quietly to Jesus now. What does it look like for you to respond to that message? For some of us, Lord, we realize we made some mistakes. We've got some regrets and we carry some wounds in our sexuality, Lord. So thankful, Jesus, that you didn't remain perfect and aloof from us, but you incarnated, you became human, you stepped into the the mess of humanity in a sense in order to take us free and to restore our lives and that on the cross you took upon yourself all of these things that we've done that we shouldn't have, all of our regrets, all of our failures, and even our shame. And so, Christ, I choose now to to put that on the cross, to lay it down at the foot of the cross. And thank you that in you, Jesus, you are remaking me. You are redeeming me. You are making me new. Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that in me? Would you give me back my sexuality in a sense, in its redeemed form, in its renewed form? that I can live in your world, in your ways, in this world, in your ways, Jesus.